0: Key to deliverance from sins and struggles and strongholds is to know the real root behind them, not people, not places, the devil in disguise. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, here to shut down the enemy's lies in your life. I do it live. On Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org slash live. So join us live sometime, will you? We'd love to have you. By the way, whether you've been tuning in for a short time or a long time, I'd love to know how the show is helping you. Share your story with me through my website at kylewinkler.org or DM me through one of my social media channels. Here's something that I just received from a new friend on YouTube. They say, thank you for your ministry. It has helped me see God in a new loving light and encouraged me to pursue him and to respond to his pursuit of his love for me and mankind. I love that. You know, it's the joy of my life to bring the truth of God's love and grace, whoever you are, wherever you are. And I'm grateful for the friends and partners who make it possible. You know, we are entirely donor-supported, so if you'd like to be one of those givers who help keep us going and growing, you may make a tax-deductible donation at kylewinkler.org donate. Okay. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, the Apostle Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. King James Version says he masquerades as an angel of light. Two different ways to say the same thing. The enemy tries hard to make both himself and his tricks appear like something else, usually something good, often something that looks or sounds or feels like God. Kind of like Elvis Presley saying, Looks like an angel, walk like an angel, talk like an angel. I'll spare you the rest of my attempt at singing. The enemy's disguises are really what's behind so many of the issues we have in our lives. They're at the root of strongholds and struggles. You see, what you believe about the enemy impacts your life more than you know. For example, If you think he's more powerful than he really is, you're going to get caught up in fighting him in ways that only exhaust and frustrate you, but never get anywhere. If you think he's under every rock, that's to say more present than he really is, you're only going to live fearful, paranoid, you'll be more influenced by him. And also, if you think that he doesn't exist. I guess the devil has disguised himself so much, usually through science and psychology these days, that a growing number of Christians, much less those in the world, deny his existence entirely. But you have to remove huge chunks of scripture if you're going to do that. Anyway, back to my point. If you think that he doesn't exist, then you might focus on the wrong things. People might suddenly become your enemies. Or you might only look to things like self-help and science to address the issues in your life. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we should obsess about the enemy. He doesn't deserve a whole lot of airtime. But as Paul said, we can't be ignorant of his schemes either. I know that some people want to avoid any mention of him because it doesn't sound so positive talking about him, I guess. But I'd actually argue the opposite. I'd say that when he's properly taught about, like I aim to do here, well, that should be one of the most positive messages you hear because really it's a boast in the gospel and the good news of Jesus. A boast in the devil's defeat. So a proper message about the enemy should remove your fear, increase your peace, give you real answers, and maybe solutions to your problems. An improper message is going to actually give you more problems. So, if you want to talk about deliverance, I'd say knowing about your enemy is a key part of the process. And let me add to that not just knowing that he exists. Yes, you have to know he exists, step one. But knowing what he does, how he does it, and here's something most Christians never hear knowing how he changed after the cross, and after your salvation. I've got to build up to that, so stay with me. But first, let me say a thing about names in Scripture. In Bible times, names were more of a job description or considered as prophetic of one's destiny, far more than they are today. You know, Billy, Bob, Sue, or Sally... Maybe they mean something, I don't know. But most people's names today are just names that maybe sounded good to their parents at the time. But like I said, it was different in Bible times, much different. For example, John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, forerunner to Jesus. He was the one chosen to announce the coming of Jesus. Well, God instructed his parents to name him John because John means God is gracious. His name was his job description. His name was prophetic of his destiny. His name declared purpose, which was to announce the true character of God, which was about to be demonstrated through Jesus. Going all the way back to the beginning, Adam means man. That's about as obvious of a meaning as you can get. Eve means mother of all living. Eve's name even gives us a clue as the time of day that Adam was created. Did you know that? We can know that Adam was created in the afternoon because it was just before Eve. That's a joke, a bad joke, I know. My point is names in the Bible mean something. They're job descriptions, and the names in Scripture for the enemy are no different. Like I said a few minutes ago. You'll see how a name change in the New Testament reveals something about him and what he does that is actually good news for you and provides an easy answer when it comes to deliverance from your problems. Let's start in the Old Testament. There's really one predominant name that you'll find there for the enemy it's the Hebrew word Satan, which we say is Satan. But the name Satan literally means adversary or opponent. Opposing is what Satan does. Now, here's the interesting thing about Satan in the Old Testament. And this could be a college course. But I don't want to complicate it for you, so I'll give you the gist. The Old Testament spans about 4,000 years of history. For a good chunk of that time, I'd say close to three-fourths of the time, God's people didn't know about Satan as the author of evil. They didn't know him as God's enemy and our enemy. They really didn't know him as a proper name. They didn't talk about him like we do today. They didn't say the enemy tempted me or the devil made me do it. They didn't know him like that or know of him at all, really. Think about the story of Adam and Eve. Today, We know that the serpent that tempted them was the enemy. But we only know that from Jesus and the New Testament. It was Jesus who said that he was a liar at the beginning, alluding to the garden. In Revelation, it reveals that Satan was in the serpent. But they didn't know that before the days of Jesus. Adam and Eve didn't know it was the enemy. He was disguised to them. Same with most of God's people in the thousands of years before Jesus. Back then, they saw the serpent as something of God sent to test them. He was God's serpent. Now, some people ask, what about Job? The story of Job. Isn't that an Old Testament story? Isn't Satan mentioned there? And yes, it is. And yes, he is. The author who wrote down the story many years after it happened knew about Satan because of later inspiration. He saw Satan behind the scenes. But Job didn't know it was Satan at the time. Job's wife didn't. Job's friends didn't. Job blamed God for everything that happened to him, all his sickness and his loss. He's famous for saying, the Lord gives and takes away. Job's wife told him to curse God. Job's friends said it was God's punishment for sin in his life. It was all God, they thought. Yet another example of the devil in disguise. And it reveals how he primarily works as adversary. Noticing the examples that I gave so far, Adam, Eve, Job. All were made to believe that God was behind the testing and the tempting and the punishing. Caused Adam and Eve to hide from God. Job blamed God, his wife blamed God, his friends blamed him, ultimately God though for punishing him for his sin. And it led to a lot of fear and depression. Remember the verse I opened this message with 2 Corinthians 11:14? The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. As a part of that, he tries to look like God or pass off the works of his hands to look as the work of God's hands? A few chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. And there's the primary way that Satan worked in his role as adversary back before Jesus and the way he still works against unbelievers today. He tries to keep people from seeing God's goodness. He tries to make them believe that their every problem or trauma or disaster is the product of God's anger or God's punishment so that they'll hide from him or blame him or curse him so that they'll want nothing to do with him. I see and hear it all the time these days, even. And sadly, I often hear it from the mouth of Christians that ought to know better. If you've read my book, Shut Up, Devil, then you know some of these tricks. It's part of what I call the secret strategy against your mind. Yes, the enemy afflicts people physically, but he gets more mileage in your mind by making your circumstances out to look like they are God's hand, God's plan, God's will, because God's bad. He'll tell you that sickness or symptom is God getting you back, or that disaster is God's wrath, or that disability is because God selected you to suffer. He knows that nobody can be in a trusting, intimate relationship with someone they believe is out to get them. And that's as true for a relationship with God as it is for relationships with a human. This is the greatest product of the enemy. Disguised as an angel of light, he keeps people blinded to the good news of the gospel so that they want nothing to do with God or, at best, relate to God according to a character that isn't God at all. Jesus came to fix this skewed view of God. The Gospel of Mark records that Jesus launched his ministry saying, Repent and believe the good news. Now, a lot of people mistake this as Jesus saying, Shape up and believe the good news. As if shaping up comes first. But that's just another disguise. You see, the word repent is metanoia in Greek. It doesn't mean to fix your behaviors and get perfect. That's not possible. It literally means to change your mind. Jesus began his ministry saying, I'm here to change your mind about God. I'm here to show you that he's not the angry taskmaster you've believed for thousands of years. I'm here to show you that God is good, full of unfailing love and faithfulness. He's always been that way. Jesus came to demonstrate it so their eyes and ears could actually see and hear it. Now, speaking of Jesus launching his ministry, right before he officially launched it, we see the very first instance in Scripture of the enemy's new name, of his new role. In the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, that's where the name devil first appears in the Bible. And again, if you've read my book, Shut Up, Devil, then you know this. This is the premise of the first chapter. Devil in Greek is diabolos, and that means slanderer. Another word the Bible uses is accuser. You've heard that one before, I'm sure. Slander, accuser, both ultimately mean the same thing. I like to use slanderer because I think it describes where he wants to go with his accusations. It shows where his road leads. Slander means to use lies or half-truths, to destroy somebody's reputation. That's where he wants to go with his lies and accusations, to destroy your reputation. In Revelation 12.10, John calls him the accuser of our brothers and sisters. You see, accuser, slanderer, that's the role he uses against believers. You see it in Scripture. Anytime the word devil is used, it's ultimately used as he relates to believers. Now, he's still Satan, and he still opposes people, particularly to keep unbelievers from knowing that God is good, to keep them away from God, as I said earlier. But for people who know the good news, who have accepted the truth of the gospel, who know Jesus, for believers, he switched his tactic. He tries to tell you that you aren't good. He tries to slander you with reminders of past regrets and present struggles. Those are the accusations in order to destroy your reputation. He uses things that might be true even, things that might be partially true to concoct lies disguised as truth, things that feel real, sound real, maybe look real. That's the deception. That's the bait so that you think, oh, that is true so that you take what he says afterwards. This is how he first came against Jesus. At the very end of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. When he comes out of the water, the voice of God speaks from heaven and says, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. He spoke identity on Jesus. God calls him a son who's dearly loved, who brings him great joy. Pretty huge. That's the end of chapter 3, the very last verse there. The very next verse, in Matthew 4, verse 1, Jesus is in the wilderness where he gets tempted by the devil. And that's the Greek word there, diabolos not satanos, the Greek word for Satan, diabolos. Jesus encountered the enemy as the devil, the slanderer. And if you read through the story there in Matthew 4, you'll find that the devil throws three things out at Jesus, which are questions about his identity. The first time begins with, if you are the son of God. Second time, same thing, if you are the son of God. For the third time, the devil takes him to the top of a mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and says, I'll give it all to you if you bow down to worship me. Well, Jesus is creator, not the devil. The devil didn't own anything. Those weren't his mountains, his kingdoms. He was trying to undermine what Jesus already had question his identity, who he is, what he had, everything God said. In every case, Jesus didn't arm wrestle the devil away. He didn't fast him away. He didn't even pray him away. I like to say he truthed him away. That's the best, most instant way to be delivered from a lie or the effects of a lie. Take truth to it. That last verse of that story says, then the devil went away. When Jesus spoke the truth, then the devil went away. And angels came and took care of him. So do you see in the case of Jesus, dealing with the slanderer, it was truth that did the deliverance. And this encounter with Jesus in the wilderness is a foreshadowing of how the enemy would later work in the lives of Jesus' followers, in the lives of we Christians, and what we should do as well to shut him down and shut him up. You see, at least for those who know the true gospel, who have received the identity of Christ, the enemy can't really work as Satan in our lives. He can't get into you to possess you. Now, he can mess with your flesh from the outside of you. He can. Put things in your mind. Those are things that he did to the Apostle Paul. Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. So he can mess with things like that. But he can't get in you, and he doesn't have the power to actually separate you from God. He can't destroy you, not the real you, which is your spirit. He can't destroy that. All he can do is deceive you into believing that God isn't who he says he is, that you aren't who God says that you are that you don't have what God says that you have, which includes the relationship that God says that you have with him. The only real power that the enemy has against a Christian is to slander who they are. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. Paul was writing to the Christians at Colossae They were being influenced by religious leaders from the local synagogue who told them they needed to do more to be pleasing to God. That simple faith in Jesus wasn't enough. Well, in Colossians 2.8, Paul calls that empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Love that. In verse 10, he tells them the truth. He says, so you are also complete through your union with Christ. The words complete and union convey a whole bunch of identity. And those two words are wholeness, holiness, forgiveness, cleanliness. The devil was using these religious leaders to put all of that into question, to slander them and get the Christians back on the treadmill of trying to earn something that Jesus already provided and proved. So Paul goes on to renew their minds to truth. He tells them how at the moment of their salvation, at the moment of their faith in Jesus, their sin nature was cut out and they were given the new life of Christ. Verse 13 through 14, he says, God made you alive with Christ, forgave all your sins, Cancelled the record of the charges that were against you at the cross. And in one of my favorite deliverance verses, Paul describes what the cross did to the enemy. In Colossians 2.15, he says, In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now, just reading that at face value is encouraging enough. But when you know the cultural thing that Paul described there, it really takes the teeth away from the devil. Well, take your fear away, that's for sure. It was meant to. Because when Paul said he shamed them publicly, this whole verse here is describing a Roman parade that they would have understood when they read this back then. A Roman parade called a triumphal procession. In short, when the Roman military conquered an enemy army, they stripped the enemy's leader of all his weapons and clothing and marched him naked through the streets in a victory parade, a triumphal procession. And they did this to assure the people that the threat is gone so that the people could see with their own two eyes that the enemy has no power. There's nothing to fear. And that's exactly what Paul shows us about our spiritual enemy right here. He says that at the cross, the enemy's real power was stripped away. And he's paraded now. Defeated. So there's nothing to be afraid of. He can't use sin to separate people from God anymore charges were canceled, forever forgiven. To the Corinthians, he said with the cross, God reconciled the world back to himself, no longer counting their sins against them. So God did his part. And the devil has no power to change that. Now, I know this begs the question for some people, then why does the enemy still exist? Why does he still seem so powerful? I mean, look at the world today. Isn't he running amok? Well, yeah, he's still alive. The cross didn't remove the enemy. That will happen at the end of time when he's thrown into the lake of fire. The cross removed the enemy's only real power. That's what happened. Like I said, he can still mess with your flesh. He comes against unbelievers by trying to blind them to God's goodness, and he can even get into them, but he can't keep God away from anyone. He can keep people from God, but he can't keep God away from people. He can't use sin to separate anymore. All that power was destroyed at the cross when Jesus was the final sacrifice for it and reconciled the world back to God. Now, what this also means for you, my fellow believer, is that the enemy can't handcuff you and make you do anything. All he can do is influence your flesh and your emotions, your attitudes and actions through lies and deception. He gets into your mind. It's like the woman who went to Nordstrom just to browse, when she noticed a dress there that she didn't need, but, you know, she thought, "Eh, it sure looks nice. Well, she suddenly found herself swiping her card for it at the register. And you know Nordstrom clothes aren't cheap. She went home to show her husband overcome with guilt about the purchase. She said, look what the devil made me do. Now she and her husband are Christians. So the husband said, why didn't you say get behind me, Satan? And she said, I did, but he said it looks better from behind. He didn't make her do it. He got into her mind and deceived her into it. Now, I mean, maybe it did look better from behind. Sometimes he uses things that are true or are real to concoct a lie, which can be very influential. You know, he might point to something you really did in the past to create a lie about your present. Something that sounds like you fell to that back then. This is who you are today. Or he might point to something that really exists in your present to lie about your future. Could sound like, God can never love someone like you. And those lies can be influential. They can affect you. Because what starts in the mind ends up trickling down to affect your talk and your walk. Lies can make you buy a dress that you don't need. They can provoke bad feelings like guilt and fear and insecurity, shame, depression. They can lead you to try to soothe those feelings with bad things that just lead to more bad feelings that lead to more bad things that lead to more bad feelings that lead to more bad things. And around and around it goes, creating a tough-to-break cycle that's called a stronghold. The devil can lie but he can't change God's mind about you. He can't make God want to punish you. He can't keep God away from you. He doesn't have the power to change you from being the new, whole, holy, right person that God made you to be. Now here's where the rubber meets the road, the takeaway from all of this. Here's how knowing about the enemy, what he does, how he changed after the cross in your salvation, how knowing all of that helps with real and lasting deliverance. It all means that whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever emotion, whatever symptom, whatever addiction, whatever habit, whatever, you can know that it means nothing about God for sure. He's not mad. He's not out to get you. He's not getting you back. You can also know that it means absolutely nothing about you. You're not wrong. You're not horrible. You're not dirty. God's not asking for you to try harder or fix yourself up more. He's not asking you to fight the devil. As a believer, you're in right standing with him. That's what you got immediately with your salvation. Now, the devil can question that. That's a slander. That's what he tries to do. And that can be influential, as I said. But he can't change that, and that's what you've got to know. He can't change the truth. So when it comes to dealing with the devil today, to deliverance, all you need to do is remember truth. And here's some truth for starters. It's what I often say. It's foundational. God is good, and you are good with God. Despite your circumstances, despite your past regrets, despite your present struggles, I don't care. No matter what your ex says or your in laws say, no matter what your boss says or your kids say, no matter what anything anybody says, God is good and you are good with God, period. Fixate on that. Take your thoughts captive with that. Anything that says otherwise, you say, "Uh uh-uh, nope, I know the truth. Send that devil packing. Send that lie packing. Get to the root of your strongholds, those lies with that, with truth, gospel truth. And I promise you, things will change over time. Good beliefs produce good fruit, good attitudes, good actions, good behaviors, a good life. It's as Jesus said, truth will set you free. Speaking of truth setting you free, there's so much more where this came from in my book here, Shut up, devil. Silencing the ten lies behind every battle you face. Like I said in the message, the enemy uses lies disguised as truth. To get into your mind. It's the sneaky way he does it. In the first four chapters of this book, I reveal more about the sneaky way that he does it. Things that you just don't see until you recognize it. I'll show it to you in here. Then I tackle the 10 big lies that he uses, and I systematically take each one down with truth. But this isn't just information. At the end of every chapter, I help you activate everything you learned in the chapter in a way that changes your mind to change your life. Shut Up Devil is available wherever books are sold, but I'll send you a signed copy if you order it on my website at kylewinkler.org shutupdevil. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he's for you. And we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get your social media. Don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. I'll see you next time.